Proverbs chapter 16. If you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. God's Word says this, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you this morning and thank you for this place to gather as your people, to worship, to commune together. And so, God, as we worship today, as we give thanks to you for our salvation, as we give thanks for all that you provide, Lord, we see your hand at work. And for that, Lord, we just give you praise. It is whenever we try to take control that we find that our attempts are folly. But it is in submission to your will, as your divine will causes our will to align with you is where we find prosperity and freedom and contentment. And for that, God, we thank you. And so this morning, Lord, please draw us into your presence as we worship. Guide us even in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Proverbs chapter 16 is a very important text for us to look at this morning in light of this season of the year, where it seems like, on one hand, we proclaim that this is the season of giving and the season for sacrifice for others and giving. But somehow, in the midst of all of this, our secular society has turned even the act of giving into a self-serving thing. It's all about me. Let's just buy out the latest thing. Let's just go and enjoy ourselves and spend money on ourselves. We've earned it. We've worked so hard. I don't know about you, but it's one of these things that really dwells on my mind often. Man's free will versus God's sovereignty. Seems to be a clash. And I think Proverbs chapter 16 gives us wisdom here on how to navigate these waters. I think one of, the strong, uh, one of the most difficult struggles that any parent has is the strong-willed child. Can we say amen, moms and dads? <clears throat> There's something about having children that God uses to teach us uh, what it is that God has to deal with when he's dealing with us. We as parents want our children to do everything that we want them to do down to the very small detail, to the fact that we hope that our children, actually we expect our children to think the way we do, act the way we do, behave the way we do, or better than the way we do. Amen? And it seems like whenever there is tension in the family between generations, I think it boils down to this, this issue of the will. 
Amen. We as the parents have in our mind that we created these children, and so they must be like us. God, in His wisdom and in His sovereignty, looks upon us as His creation and somehow does not fall into the trap that we as parents fall into with our kids. He loves us, He's frustrated with us, but He shapes us in the way that He wants us to be while somehow allowing us to be unique. I don't know about you, but I don't like being told what to do. You want to find out, you want to find out my stubbornness, try telling me that I can't do something. Amen, I'll do it just to spite you, whether it's right or wrong. And then I'll figure out a way to justify that it was right. Just to prove myself to you. That is one of my sins. But I think when we look at the book of Proverbs, we see a very distinct theme here in Proverbs chapter 16 that we see throughout Scripture. It's not just in one place. It is in many places. The wisdom of the Proverbs looks to the folly of man's strong will in contrast to God's divine will. See, Scripture tells of God's sovereign decree. It actually, it thrusts upon us a theme of divine predestination, whether we like it or not. Now, I have learned in my years in the pulpit that whenever this word predestination comes up, there are little hairs that rise up on the back of people's necks in defense, and he's one of those Calvinists. I'm not a Calvinist. I just like to see what God says in His Word. Scripture tells pretty clearly that God's divine freedom is stronger than man's free will. And Proverbs chapter 16, I believe, brings this to fruition. It brings it to the top that all the plans of man lead to evil, yet the will of God is righteous. At the heart of this doctrine, at the heart of what we see here in Proverbs chapter 16, is this idea, and I want you to think about it this way, is the idea of God's freedom. You ever thought about God with freedom? That, that's kind of a conundrum in Christian circles, isn't it? God is not free. I am. Because we want to elevate our free will and say, God must do what I pray to Him. And He, like, even when we pray, think about it. Dear God, do this. Dear God, do that. Dear God, I want this. Dear God, do it. We dare to come to God's throne in the attitude of prayer in such a way that God is not free. God is in our box. And I think we look at Proverbs chapter 16, and the wisdom of Solomon here reminds us that to think that our free will trumps God's divine freedom leads to folly and evil. Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. How many of us have tried to plan for the future 
thinking that we've got all of our ducks in a row, all of the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Everything is perfectly in order for a specific outcome. And then we are suddenly shocked when it doesn't work out the way we planned. Ever been, been there, done that? We can plan our future. It, it, it's amazing that as a young person, and I, and I did this when I was younger too, the older I get, I think the more complacent I'm becoming that why should I bother? It's all going to work out one way or the other. But when I was in my teens, I knew that by the age of 25, I was going to be at a particular level. I had in my plans, you know, at, at the age of 16, you know, they always ask you this when you're 16. <laughs> Because by the time you're an 18, 19-year-old adult, the parents want to know, what, what are your plans? And of course, we all have these future plans, and we look ahead, and we think, this is what tomorrow is going to bring. The wisdom of Proverbs here says, the plans of the heart belong to man. Yeah, we, we can plan all day long. Our heart can desire a future. Our heart can desire an outcome. And I think there is something wise there that God gives us that, that creativity to think and to plan in the future because without a future hope, what are we going to do today? How do we get to a particular purpose, to a particular end? I think we still have to have a vision for tomorrow to motivate us today to move toward that. That is something God has instilled within us. We even see here in verse 1 of chapter 16, the plans of the heart belong to man. We do. God has given us the ability to plan and to desire. But the answer of those desires, the answer to those plans are in the second half of this verse. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Meaning, meaning that God will determine the outcome. He will determine what will be said. He will determine what will come of what is said. He will determine what is, what is the outcome of the plans. We see here in verse 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. I mean, I, I, I can imagine myself in a way that I am truly not. See, and all of us do this. How many of you have a, a, a perception of who you are in your mind? You think about what you look like. You think about your personality. You think about who you are. See, in my mind, I'm still 25 years old with a 32-inch waistline. That's not necessarily fact, is it? In my mind, I can still do everything that I did when I was a young man. But my body tells me no. I used to be able to pull all-nighters and, and stay up all night and get a lot done and still go. I'd, go. I'd go for two days, three days with no sleep just to be, just so I wouldn't miss anything. Now, I'm telling you what, if I have to pull a late-nighter, the next day I'm just toast. It's interesting here that in verse 2, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. We think that our choices and our decisions are the right ones. We think, matter of fact, the idea here is pure or purified or cleansed or white as snow. We think of our own plans this way. What I desire is clearly not wrong. But it is God, verse 2, the Lord himself weighs the Spirit. See, at the heart of this issue here 
this doctrine of predetermined destinies, this idea of determinism, this idea that God himself somehow has, has determined all that there is, all that there will be, and all that will come. At the heart of this idea is God's freedom that I want us to take hold of here. This is what we see here in Proverbs 16. You see, God's freedom versus man's free will. Even liberal theologians like Emil Bruner, if you, if you don't know much about theologians, Bruner was considered, I mean, he was strong, his, his philosophy or his theologies were strong, but there was a hint of liberalism in there. He even says this, he says, even a liberal theologian says, election constitutes the center of the Old and the New Testament. You can't get away from it. It's there. So this is why whenever we speak of these, whenever we use the vocabularies of election, of predestination, it's just this idea that, that stirs up strife in the church. And I don't think that needs to be because if we are people of the book, we have to look in God's Word and, and say this is clearly what God is speaking of. This is clearly God's nature that God is free to do whatever He wills. And man's will is not that free. Now, here's where the strength, here's where the tension comes in. Whenever we hear this idea of election and predestination, in our mind, we think of humanity as, as mere robots or puppets with no choices. That's not what the scriptures say about God's freedom and his desire for us. God does not create us as mere robots who have no choice for where we go. Yet at the same time, Scripture is very clear that God's will, God's divine power trumps ours, whether we like it or whether we don't. And I think that's what really causes a lot of people consternation when they hear these words. Because at the, at the core of our heart... The plans of our heart, the purity of our desires that we think are pure, is God who says, I will decide. At the very center of man's fallen nature is this idea that man feels like he is free to do whatever he wants, that man is stronger than God. That's at the center of the fall. God said, but I think differently. That's it. If our wills are not in alignment with God's will, then we are in sin and we are separated from His presence. So therefore, at the very center of the gospel is that God, through His grace, makes it possible for our wills to be in alignment with His that, does not, that doesn't mean that we make it so, because if we made our wills in alignment with God's will, then God's not necessary. He just sits back and waits for us to come. Christ himself would have never been necessary on the cross to die and to be raised from the dead. If, if, our, if all it takes is for us to make a decision for Christ, if all it takes is for us to choose God, then we would never do it. Because in our eyes, our ways, our ideas, our heart is pure. 
So why do we need God? That's the problem, isn't it? Because when you actually stop and think about what we're saying here when we use that language, what we're actually saying is God's will is not as important as mine. I see myself for who I am. I'm okay. I mean, whenever I talk to people who are not saved, who are not children of God, every time they say, well, I'm okay. God and I are good. You don't have to worry about me. And you look at their lives and you look at their attitudes and you think they are nowhere near to God. Think about this, this idea of man's free will. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 22 says this. Even, even the prophet Isaiah regards this. He says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? The theme throughout all of Scripture is that the fallen nature of man is that we are so far from God's perfection that who are we to claim to know anything, especially when it comes to God? You see, God, here's what we have to understand about God's nature. God is not bound by any necessity of nature to the universe whatsoever. Even though God Himself created the universe, even though God Himself created all that there is, God is not bound to the laws of nature. Because if God's creation binds Him, then God is not God. But think about this. God is not bound by any necessity of nature to the universe. God, who is the Creator, by necessity must be outside of creation, yet He is also a part of His created world at the same time. Without us worshiping trees and rocks, you know, that's pantheism. We don't need to do that. God Himself, by the very fact that He is Creator God, is not bound by the laws of His creation. That's a, that's a very simple idea, but we don't take that to heart, do we? Because in man's free will idea, we control God. God must wait for us to love Him. If God had to wait for us to love Him, God would still be waiting. And there would be no salvation possible. Amen? You see, God is not bound by the laws of nature. God is not bound to mankind. God is not even bound to His church. When I use the word bound, I mean God is not under the control of. God is not tied to as if He has tasked to do something that we command Him to do. God is free to create if He wants to and if He doesn't. God is free to do whatever He wills. He is free to provide or not to provide. God is free to come to our, into our presence or not. God is free to provide salvation or not provide salvation. That is His choice. Yet, unfortunately, when man's free will over, overcomes God's freedom, then suddenly salvation is a matter of us making it happen. And that's a problem. 
In Proverbs chapter 16, we see a very strong theme. Turn, look down on verse 4. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now that one verse right there, we could, we could probably preach a month's worth of sermons on that. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. <laughs> That's a conundrum. Because God who is holy and righteous and good, who is not evil, there is not one ounce of evil in God's nature. God has made everything, even the wicked. Now, does that mean that God made evil? No. That's a different idea altogether. God does not make evil. The idea of evil in the world is the, is the result of man's freedom to sin. Because if we did not have the freedom to love God, then we would just be robots. You see, God, God has still given us as His creation a sense of free will to make decisions, to plan, to think, to learn from our consequences. If we were not free to make choices, then we would not make mistakes and then learn from those mistakes and then come closer to the Lord. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. It, think about it. When God has made everything, when God makes something, He has a reason for it. Think about that. God is not a random God. God is not a chaotic, purposeless being. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, which means that all that there is has a pre-designed, pre-purposed existence. You and I as human beings, we are made in God's image, the imago Dei. God made all that there was, and He looked around and He said, I want to make one more thing. I want to make man in my image. God made all of the universe. He spoke it into being. Notice how God makes. God speaks, and it is. God has made everything, and when God speaks and He creates, there's a reason it's there. Think about this. Think about your father or a grandfather or someone in your past who was in authority over you or perhaps still is in authority over you. When they speak, should you listen? <laughs> amen. Out of the mouths of babes, amen. When I was raising my boys... I wanted them to understand, I love you, but when I speak, I want your attention. God is the same way. When He speaks, He makes everything. And when He makes everything, there is a reason for it. Even the wicked. That's why there is a tension that we have as human beings. We think about this all-righteous, all-holy, all-perfect, sovereign God... And then somehow we see a disconnect in the fact that there is evil in the world. God has made even the wicked for a reason. 
for the day of trouble. What is this day of trouble? Again, I think what we're talking about here is God allows even the wicked for His divine purpose. Because God makes everything for its purpose, and the purpose of the wicked is for God to show His glory. Amen? I don't like that. Trust me, I don't like being around wicked people. I hate it when wicked people win and I lose. And I look at the Lord and I just shake my fist. God, He smiles. He says, what are you learning, Bryant? You see, this is the idea of... Some of the early Christian fathers would call this the the soul-making defense for the problem of evil. Why does God allow and permit the wicked? It's for for developing the soul. How can you shape someone's will? How can you shape their soul? How can you develop who they are without their freedom to choose and fail or choose and succeed? I think God in His wisdom, who makes everything for its purpose, even the wicked, (laughs) draw us to God and show God's glory in contrast. We see this in the book of Job, that God permitted Satan to take all that Job had. But even then, God in His sovereignty had Satan in His control. You can do this, but no more. And my servant Job will give me glory. Now, we know in the book of Job that that Job, he he had tensions here with all of this. And that's what 40 chapters plus of the book of Job is all about. But in the end, Job says, I had heard of God, but now I see Him. And so the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now notice here, let's just drop down to verses 6 and 7 in Proverbs 16. We see even more of God's sovereignty here. It says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Notice here in verse 6, what what is the wisdom of Solomon speaking here? By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. What is iniquity? That's the heart of sin. (laughs) Iniquity is turning from God and failing to be in His will and failing to walk along the path that God Himself has ordained. The steadfast love and faithfulness Iniquity is atoned for. You see, even here in Proverbs 16, verses 6 and 7, we see the plan of salvation right here in the Proverbs. You see, we turn from, we repent. That's what turning from means. We turn from evil. We turn and we repent by the fear of the Lord. You see that in verse 6? By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is toned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. How do we as evil fallen creatures adjust the will to be in alignment with God? Because if it was up to you and me, we would never do it. 
We would only choose to align with God's will whenever it was convenient for us. Dear God, I will follow you if, if I get this out of it. We look at the consequences. We look at what comes from this choice. Because every one of us make choices every single day. And if we are wise people, like the book of Proverbs has shown us, our choices will show us whether or not that act is in God's will or not. And so here in verse 6, we see the plan of salvation even here. How do we turn from evil? To turn from is the idea of repenting. To repent is to go 360 degrees, or actually 180 degrees. My math is just off. 180 degrees away from evil. To turn from. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to respect. It means to honor. It means to have a respectful humility before God. And so what's happening here in verses 6 and 7? By the fear of the Lord, one turns from evil. Verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so if we think through this logically, if man's ways lead to evil, if man's choices lead to folly, like we see in verse 18, look over at verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Our will is full of pride. And where does, where does our will lead to? Destruction and a fall. Look here in verse 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. What is the end of sin? Death. Eternal separation from God Himself. If it was up to man's free will to choose salvation, if it was up to man's free will to choose God, Scripture doesn't point to that. Because our will, in verse 25, always seems right. That's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 16. The plans of the heart belong to man. In verse 2, the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. And we see in verse 25... There is a way that seems right to us, but its way, but its end is the way to death. So if man's ways seem right, why is it that it always leads to the wrong thing? There's wisdom required here. There is wisdom necessary here. And the wisdom here is to align with and to follow God's good pleasure. His divine will. God's freedom to be God. Amen? We as human beings cannot, no matter how much we try, box God in. We cannot box God's salvation into a comfortable package that makes us comfortable. Because God's freedom to liberate us from our sin is something that God Himself has ordained from the beginning of time. He did not call any of this reality into existence apart from His already preplanned, I'm going to make sure that my people are redeemed. Look over in Matthew chapter 11. Let's look in two other passages. Matthew chapter 11. 
Matthew chapter 11 says this, and this is Jesus speaking to those who are waking up to the reality of the gospel. As Jesus himself is preaching to the forbidden cities, who, to, to those unrepentant cities, woe to them. Do you remember that? Woe to the unrepentant cities. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Another translation of verse 26 is his good pleasure. God has his own freedom to to do as he desires, including how does God reveal salvation to a fallen creation. God himself decided in his own good pleasure how that was going to happen and how that was going to come to be. So who are we as human beings who think that our heart is pure and our ways are right? How dare we assume that we know God and His ways? Even here in salvation, Jesus is praying to the Father. You revealed it when you wanted to. You did not reveal. See, this idea of God's revelation. We don't even know God apart from He sharing with us who He is. Because if we decide who God is, if we imagine God in our own light, in our own will, in our own imagination, then we are going to imagine a God of our making rather than us being creatures of God's making. God Himself decided in His own good pleasure, His own gracious will, how He was going to reveal Himself to His creation, how He was going to reveal the gospel through His Son, Jesus Christ, to a fallen world. Salvation is totally out of our hands. Can we say amen? Let's close here with John chapter 2. I mean, we could go on. There's, there's passages after passages after passages of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks about predestination, speaks about God's freedom and man's uh, lack thereof. John chapter 2. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ understands what it means to come to salvation through His sacrifice. John chapter 2. Let's, let's begin in verse 18. 18 through 25. John chapter 2. So the Jews said to him, Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now notice here in verses 18 through 21, the Jews, meaning the religious leaders, they presumed to tell Jesus, show us who you are. Prove to us that we can trust you. How many of us have done that to God lately? Dear God, I don't know what's going on, but you're going to have to prove it to me. 
I can't believe unless you show me a sign. There's nothing wrong with signs. There's nothing wrong with wonders. There's nothing wrong with miracles. The problem is, what is the purpose of them? See, we as human beings, we demand signs and miracles and wonders for our own satisfaction and even our own excitement. Look at what God is doing, and it is wonderful when we see God moving. There is absolutely nothing wrong with watching for God's hand at work. I think it's a glorious, glorious thing. The problem is, is when we as human beings presume to tell God, give me a sign or else. That's what these Jews did. How are we going to follow you, Jesus? What sign do you show us to prove to us who you are? You see, if, 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 if man's will controlled God's freedom, then Jesus would have had to obey their request. That's not the way it is. God's freedom trumps man's free will. Look here in verse 23, John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And they did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see this theme here from the Proverbs is echoed even here in the Gospels of John chapter 2. God knows the heart of man. He knows us. And these people who come to Christ, here in verses 23 through 25, they believed in His name. You see that in verse 23? Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name. And how many of us tell people, oh, just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved? Yes, believe in Christ. But we don't save ourselves through that. What, is, what are these people being believing in in verse 23? They believed in the many signs and the wonders and the miracles that Christ did, which all pointed to the gospel. Many wanted to follow Jesus' teachings. Many wanted to follow Jesus for what He did for them. Because think about it, if you received a blessing from the Lord, if you received a touch from Jesus Himself, and you were healed miraculously, if you were there when Jesus fed the 5,000 plus, and you were starving, and you miraculously saw God provide, would you not, want, would you not be drawn to that? Absolutely. But here's where we miss it. Many want to follow Jesus for what He does for them. And they believe not in Christ. They believe in what He does. And if God is free to do as He wishes, God can provide and God may not provide. Do we still believe and do we still trust you see, these people here in verse 23, they believed in His name. When the, but notice how they believed. It follows in verse 23. They believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. Many, many did not believe in Christ. They believed in His actions and miracles instead. Look in verse 24. But Jesus on His part 
did not entrust himself to them. Another translation there is, but Jesus on his part did not confide himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Verses 24 and 25 show Christ's connection with the, Lord, with the Father and the sovereignty of it all. When we come to salvation in Christ Jesus, we must understand and be reminded that through God's sovereignty, we are saved. Through His grace and mercy, in His good pleasure, we are saved. You see, now let, let's, let's close with this thought here. Let us not confuse this idea of God's freedom and this idea of election and this idea of predestination. Let's not confuse that with an idea of ancient times called fate. This is where I think Christians miss it. When we think about these, these words, this vocabulary of election and predestination and determination, we think of fate. In other words, what God declares, we are fated to an end. I think that's where Christians miss it. And this is what Christian thinkers and, and even the apostles wrestled with this. Early church fathers wrestled with this. How do we understand the clear teachings of Scripture of God's freedom versus man's free choices? If God is divine and He has divine will and He has divine good pleasure and His gracious will directs all that we have, do, and see, does that mean that we are fated to do whatever God says from the beginning of the world. Here's where the mystery comes in. Predestination and election is not fate. I want to let that sink in for a minute. The doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination tied into God's sovereignty is not the same thing as the pagan religion's ideas of fate. Because in fate, no matter what we do, the outcome will be the same. Let me tell one little story and tie it into the Christian truth. If you understand the ancient story of Oedipus, if you've never read the story, you may have heard it in different, in different planes. The, the, I, the story of Oedipus shows the idea of fate at work. Imagine a king and a queen give birth to a little prince. And this pagan oracle prophesies that this, that this little prince will someday murder the king and take over the kingdom. That's a, that's a prophecy of fate. So in order to trump the outcome, the king and the queen take the little baby out into the woods and just leave the baby in hopes that the baby will die. Therefore, the prophecy will not come about. The old story of Oedipus says this, that somehow along the way, this little baby is rescued by another loving family in the woods. They just adopt this abandoned baby and raise him to adulthood in a loving family. And they tell him of the prophecy that was spoken over him. Well, this little baby thinks that that prophecy is now talking about his loving adoptive parents. So he leaves his parents so that he will not kill them. 
And along the way, this, this now grown man, Oedipus, randomly comes across his original birth father, the king, and they get into an argument on the road, and Oedipus kills him. And, so, and then subsequently finds his widow and marries her, and he takes over the kingdom. Now, y'all following where the fate is leading here? Oedipus ends up marrying his mother, not knowing she was his mother. And ultimately through the story, the truth comes out and he realizes what has come about, that fate has destined him to a horrible end. We as Christians confuse pagan teachings of fate with the idea of God's sovereign will and election and determination for us. God does not fate us to an end. God is in control of all ends. Think about it that way. And somehow in the midst of this, and this is the the mystery, somehow in the midst of all of this tapestry of reality and history and, and human creativity and human will, God is weaving it all into a beautiful work of glory. And so this idea of God's sovereign will is something that even He can allow us to freely live, think, choose, be. And somehow in the midst of it all, God still orchestrates turning our rebellious, sinful will to Him. Wow. So I argue... And this is something that I'm not making up. This is something that many Christian thinkers have wrestled with for centuries. God's doctrine of election and predestination and man's free will somehow are compatible. So that God is still sovereign and we are not. Amen? And so the book of Proverbs teaches us this. And we see it in the, in the Gospels, and we see it in the New Testament. We see it from cover to cover in this wonderful text of Scripture. God's freedom trumps ours. <laughs> Yet somehow, we are more free in salvation through Jesus Christ than we can ever hope to be free in our own control. That is a mystery beyond mysteries and worthy of praising God. Amen. I want to close in prayer, but I also want to pray over the uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes. Can you go get me one or two? Don't bring them all. Just bring a few in here. We've got a whole room full of them. Um, I don't, what is the grand total? How many boxes do we have, Joy? We have 35 Operation Christmas Child boxes. 37. So you brought two more today. Okay. Uh, and listen, it's not too late. We still have more brochures and information in the back for Operation Christmas Shot. I want us to close and pray. And think about this. These little boxes, even God Himself is in control of where they go. Amen? Yeah, let's bring a few in here. We're just going to pray over something. Let's just sit right here. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. I mean, these are awesome. I mean, I've been doing this for years. I, mean, I know several people have done these for years, right? We have 37 boxes now that we're going to take over to the river this week. Um, 
If you want to bring more, there's still time to bring them. I mean, now this week is the week that uh, they're going to collect them in this area. So if you've got more that you want to bring on Wednesday, we'll make sure they get over to the river. Or if you want to just take them to the River Community Church, um, the hours for this are listed on the uh, Operation Christmas Child website. If you look for drop-off locations on their website, the River Community Church is listed with the drop-off hours on the schedule. So even if you want to just take them directly over there and that's more convenient, that's fine. Okay? But I want us to pray over these, and I want us to pray in light of God's Word today for our lives, for how He's going to use these, for the gospel. Amen? Let's all just come into an attitude of prayer. Father God Almighty, You show us in Your Word very clearly that if we make plans in our imagination, the plans work out great, and they're perfect, and they're pure. But reality shows us, Father, that time and time again, every time that we follow that path, the, the end is always destruction and misery. And you show us through that, Father, that you are still in control. And so the wisdom that you give us in your book of Proverbs shows us that it is wise for us to acknowledge how frail we are and how dependent we are upon you. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would search every one of our hearts. In our rebellion, Father, I pray that you would love us and forgive us. But in your mercy, that you would show us our ways are wrong and draw us to your holiness and your love. Even these boxes here that we have created and put together for Operation Christmas Child, Father, you, know, you, you have blessed this ministry for decades now. For us, this is something simple. For you, God, it becomes something that is a tool for your glory and your kingdom. We don't have control, Father, of where these boxes go. We trust by faith that, God, you will direct every step of the journey for these boxes. You already know, God, which child is going to receive which box. And you know, Father, the, the reaction of their heart to the hearing of the gospel, even through this. And so I pray, God, that, that these gifts that we are giving that are, for us, very simple, but for others are tremendous. I pray, God, that you would use what we do here in a simple way. That, you, God, you would magnify in a glorious way. And, dear God, that you would use what we do here for your glory. I pray, God, that you would love us and you would love the children who receive these boxes and that, God, they would bring you pleasure. It is through your good pleasure, your gracious will, that we have any hope at all. And for that, Lord, we submit and we surrender and we praise you in the midst of it. And God, through your gracious will, we find freedom. And so forgive us, Father, where we fail you. And please pour your grace upon us as we need you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
。ダメ。